Well, we're talking about inward mindfulness today. We're talking about what some have called prayer, contemplative prayer, meditation, or, or um, contemplative, or the contemplative life. There are so many things to call it. I, I, these days I'm getting less and less interested in what you call something and more and more interested in actually what it is and how it works and its effectiveness. So regardless of what you call it, I just want to talk about this idea of stilling our soul, stilling our life, finding a place of quietude, going inward to the home of God, which is inside of us, and listening. Um, have you, and I know you have, so this is a rhetorical question, have you ever gotten three quarters of the way through a day? And forgive me for using the computer, I just simply could not get to the printer this morning to print this off, so I'm looking fancy using my computer, so I hope that doesn't bother you. But have you ever gotten three quarters of the way through your day and realized that you've been sleepwalking all day long? You've been in a funk? bad mood, um, hypersensitive, maybe on the other end, manic, over the top. But you wake up literally, psychologically, middle of the afternoon, and you just realize, I have been off my game all day long. Probably everybody in your life has already realized it, but you finally wake up and realize that you're just out of sorts. Anybody ever had that experience? Of course we have. Now, in that realization, sometimes comes the sad fact that almost an entire day has been wasted. And I know Richard Rohr says nothing's wasted, and I like that. God uses everything, but I would prefer to give God good raw material to work with, wouldn't you? But to some degree, you realize that almost an entire day has been wasted on unconscious living, unmindful living, just sleepwalking, just getting through. Not only do you realize that you've wasted a day in general, but specifically, as I just mentioned, other people have probably paid the price for your lack of real presence. The people in the wake of your life have paid the price for your lack of mindfulness, your lack of intentionality, your lack of awakeness, your lack of awareness. And beyond that, more than anybody else, probably you have paid the price, the exorbitant price of a day wasted, a piece of the gift of life squandered. We've all experienced that. I certainly have. I, I'll probably be disclosing in a little bit. I, I've experienced it in the last couple of days. I realized the last couple of days I've just been in a funk. I'm not going to tell you why. Just been in a funk. It's none of your business. Just been in a funk. And it stinks. And, and frankly, I'm not satisfied with just letting that be. And I don't think you should be either. When life is wasted, when we hurt ourselves, when we hurt those that we love, those in the periphery of our life, when we shortchange ourselves and others with this kind of mindless sleepwalking, it should grab our attention and say something's wrong here may not be a major adjustment that's needed, but an adjustment's needed. Something needs to be adjusted. And I think, not to be ridiculously obvious, the, the adjustment to sleepwalking is awake walking. 
And the question, of course, begs, then how do I make sure that I don't wait till middle of the afternoon to be thinking about this? How do I make sure that I, that I awake walk, that I live consciously, mindfully all day long? Well, for me, in the 12-step world, we talk about how we share our experience, our hope, and our strength, and we don't impose things on other people. And even as a teacher, it's best not to impose. I can just tell you my experience. I can tell you the failure of it and the success of it. But for me, awake walking means starting my day with intent and purpose. Awake walking means starting my day with the intention that I will set my day rather than my day setting me. Specifically, even more specifically, this means for me starting my day with a space of time committed to stillness. Starting my day with a space of time committed to contemplative prayer, meditation, quietness, listening. And I'm going to talk more about that issue of listening in just a moment. Starting my day, setting aside, whether it's 10 minutes. I love what Tony Robbins says. If you don't have 10 minutes in your life to set aside for stillness, you don't have a life. Somebody said, well, I don't have enough time to do this. You don't have enough time not to do this. Built into the rhythm of the Jewish people's walk with the Lord and the sojourn and the exodus was walk six days and rest the seventh. And the reality, the message being taught there was that if you take a space, your six days will be more effective than your seven would have been. And to take 10, 15, 20 minutes out at the beginning of the day and to commit that space of time, for me, number one, it's me acknowledging that life is a gift and that it shouldn't be squandered. It's me acknowledging my gratitude for the gift and saying, I'm not going to waste this. I'm going to be appreciative of this and not mindlessly sleepwalk through it. And frankly, it's my commitment with self-interest to get the most out of life. Now, when I wake up, practically, this is what works for me. Every morning when I wake up, I make a life-altering choice either to rush headlong into my day, hair on scarum, hair on fire. Y'all know how to get out of the house like that? Some of you did that this morning, didn't you, on your way to church? I make a life-altering decision to either rush headlong, unthoughtfully into my day's activities or to pause and not rush headlong into my normal day's activities. Now, I do understand that the morning is such a rush job for many people that the idea of a quiet time of stillness and reflection, even if it's 10 minutes, seems daunting, laughable, and even impossible to you. And I, I want you to hear me. There's no legalism in any of this, and there's no magical formula that says it has to be at the first of the day. You, you don't have to do this as soon as you get up. I'm simply understanding for me, it just makes sense that the sooner you do it, the more in front of your day you're going to be able to get. The sooner you set your affection, set your mind, and set your spirit, the sooner you're going to be in front of all of those flood of activities and emotions and life that's going to hit you shortly. So, while I'm saying there's no legalism involved in all of this, I do want to add beyond my personal experience that the sages among us, 
those great spiritual listeners among us, those who have found and developed their ears spiritually and who have learned how to truly listen, these people again and again and again consistently have agreed that the first of the day is a holy space. His mercies are new every morning. And this holy space is a space to be utilized, perhaps, arguably, like no other to our soul's benefit and growth. The sage that we follow, the Lord that we serve, there's a story in Mark, the first chapter, right out of the chute in his ministry. Mark, the first chapter, I just want to look at four or five verses there. Jesus was in Capernaum. This was the center of his Galilean ministry. And the Bible says that he had been doing many, many mighty works just before this. And watch. In the middle of these mighty works, very early the next morning, scholars say, looking at the Greek, that this was probably three to four o'clock in the morning. Very early the next morning before daylight, Jesus got up and went to a place where he could be alone and pray. Simon and the others started looking for him. Well, that's a classic line, isn't it? Jesus leaves them, goes to an alone place to pray. And when the disciples woke up, they immediately started looking for him. Anybody have children? If you ever, Jill, if you ever lose a kid, just go to the bathroom. They'll come knocking on the door, right? That's all you got to do. If you lose your kid at Walmart, go to the bathroom immediately. They will be pounding on the stall door within five minutes. That's all you got to do. Simon and the others started looking for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you, which is a nice way of saying, what are you doing here? You're the Messiah for crying out loud. What you were doing yesterday and last night, we need you to be doing now. But in the middle of all of that, Jesus stole away. Jesus replied, we must go to the nearby towns so that I can tell the good news to those people. This is why I've come. Then Jesus went to their synagogues everywhere in Galilee, preached and forced out demons. The famous Trappist monk Thomas Merton said something that is such a commentary on this text, and I want you to hear it. Merton said there should, it, there should be at least a room. There should be some corner where no one will find and disturb you. You should be able in that space to untether yourself from the world and set yourself free, loosing all the fine strings and strands of tension that bind you, that bind you by sight, by sound, by thought to the presence of other people. Once you've found this place, Merton said, be content with it. Don't be disturbed if a good reason takes you out of it. Love it. Leave it. But return to it as soon as you can. And do not be too quick to change it for another. I think this place that Merton's talking about is not just a physical space, in the house, out of the house, wherever it is for you. I don't think it's just a physical space. I think it's also a chronological space. I think it's a geographical space and a space on the clock. So the question begs, what do we do in this sanctified, set-apart space? Well, first and foremost, we listen. 
You remember Mother Teresa's famous interaction with Dan Rather when Dan Rather asked her when she talked to God, what did she say? And Mother Teresa said, I listen. To which Rather replied, well, what does God say? She replied immediately, he doesn't say anything, he listens. And the gist of Teresa's, soon to be St. Teresa's, idea was that prayer ultimately is two listening hearts in communion. In that space, I pay attention to my life. I pay attention to my body. I pay attention to my thoughts. I pay attention to my feelings. Knowing that my thoughts and feelings are not me, but they are a part of me. They are not the ultimate definition of me, but they are alerting mechanisms, breaker switches, indicators, teachers trying to get my attention. In this private, quiet space, we listen. And, and too often, and I do want to say this, and I think it's very important, too often we are found waiting on a voice from the heavens. Too often we're found waiting on a voice even from within that sounds like Charlton Heston or James Earl Jones. Not realizing that as we're waiting on the voice from the heavens, that the heavens, Jesus said, are actually within us, that the human heart is the home of God, and God's microphone and speaker system have been woven into our body's fabric all along. And God's voice will not sound like Charlton Heston or Morgan Freeman. God's voice may be the ache in my hip, the tension in my forehead, or even the giddiness and excitement in my heart. All we have to do is listen, learn to hear and develop soulish ears. There's nothing that indicates our spiritual nature, our soulishness more than this incredible, remarkable ability that all of us have. Whether we take it or not, we all have this remarkable ability to introspect. Even in the heat of the moment, if somebody has cut you off and you're filled with rage and all of the anger of the past days builds up and you have this safe moment in the car to let your rage out on this poor person. And in the middle of that raging moment, a part of you lifts to the ceiling of that car and you look at yourself, Nick, and say, what are you doing? You back up and look at yourself and Doug, you say, Mitchell, what are you doing? And you almost can look at yourself in the middle of the fray, doing all that silly stuff But this true, deep, soulish part of you has the ability to introspect and to self-reflect. And, and this ability to step back and observe ourselves, this ability to step back and get perspective, as one of my friends says, to get altitude, to lift up. A lot of coaches don't like to coach on the sidelines. They like to get up in the press box because on the sidelines, you're in the fray. But if you get up in the press box, you can get altitude and you can see the thing better. This incredible ability we have as soulish beings to listen to our lives and to literally hear God. In our stillness, we check in. You say, what do you do when you're there in the morning hour? And I was there this morning. We check in. We observe ourselves. I got up at 
2.30, finish this message, and at 7 o'clock, realize that I haven't even done the message, and I realize that I had been uncomfortable in my own skin, just a little bit sideways for the last couple of days, and I closed the message, and I went over and sat on that cushion that I always sat on, looked out the window, I always look out, and I checked in. And I observed myself, what I was feeling, what I was thinking. And importantly, you do this with the eyes of Jesus. You check in without judgment. You notice yourself with compassion. You remind yourself that your thoughts and your feelings do not define you. You sit on the cushion and I reminded myself that there are reasons, there is a biorhythm to my life. And these feelings and these thoughts that I have flying over my head, this chatter in my mind, these things are actually my friends. Even the less than pleasant ones are my friends because they serve as indicators. They are messengers from deep within inside of me about what's going on inside of me. And at the moment, you are mindfully, consciously observing your thoughts and feelings. At the moment, you're able to step back and say, I've been in a funk since Friday morning, and it hasn't been good. The moment you're able to mindfully, consciously, graciously, with compassion, observe those things without intellectualizing them, without fixing them, you are proving that you are more than them. You're backing up and looking at them and realizing these are not my boss. They are not in charge. I am. You are. My truest, deepest self. These thoughts and feelings are not me. I am in charge of them. This doesn't mean that you can keep yourself from feeling and thinking these things. You remember the old saying, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair? It doesn't mean that you can keep yourself from feeling and thinking these things, but I tell you what it does mean. It does. This ability to step back and look at yourself, it means I can't stop them, but I am responsible for what becomes of them. And frankly, I'm responsible of what becomes of me through them. And I am very responsible for the meaning that I attach to them. Been in a funk. It's a feeling narratives can be attached to that. I deserve it. It's my fault. I'm bad. This is just the way I am. I am not responsible for the feeling, but I am responsible for the narrative and the meaning that I attach to those things. That's why the Apostle Paul said, set your affections. Sometimes you got to get them by the nap of the neck and set them. And if you don't set them, they will set you. These thoughts and feelings in your mind and body will either be transformed through the practice of contemplative prayer or they will be transmitted in your life in wasteful or even worse, destructive ways. Transform them or they will be transmitted. What's amazing, this idea of listening to the body, this idea of believing that God could speak to me through sensations in my body. I don't know why that's so strange to us as Christians. Thomas Burton, the great Trappist monk, in his uh, great biography, autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, he said that when he, 
when he went away from Christianity into the world of the Buddhist and he finally learned contemplative prayer, he was so enraptured by it, he said, I set myself to leave all of Christianity. And as I sat with the old, the old man leading the Trappist or the Buddhist monastery and I told him that I was going to convert, he smiled at me and said, Thomas, go home. You're a Christian. You can do this here or you can do this there. You, you don't have to convert to another faith. What's amazing to me, and I think what Merton realized, is this whole idea of the body stilling it, listening to it, is at the heart of Christianity. For crying out loud, folks, ours is an incarnational faith. It's a faith built on the idea of God in flesh, God embodied. We are the body of Christ. Of course, then, God speaks from within our bodies. As C.S. Lewis said, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. And there is not a spirit contained in this container. This container is spiritual. And as I said last week, perhaps the sixth sense that we're always mystically referring to is actually just our five senses finally and fully alive. I'll tell you what's beautiful about Christianity. It is beautiful how Christianity teaches us to be compassionate Christianity teaches us to be merciful, gracious, non-judgmental, and understanding of the other. Christianity teaches us to love our enemies, to get understanding with all of our getting. It teaches us to walk a mile in other people's shoes. Wouldn't it be marvelous if we could bring that same compassionate eye and heart to our own lives? Carl Jung said, the acceptance, stilling, quieting, listening without judgment, accepting compassionately, mercifully. Jung said the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the whole moral problem of man. The acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the epitome of a whole outlook on life. Jung, a Christian, said that I feed the hungry, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my sisters and brothers, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least amongst them all, the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all the offenders, what if I discover the very enemy himself, that these are within me? and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved unconditionally. What then? As a rule, Jung says, the Christian's attitude is then reversed. There is no longer any question of love or long-suffering, but we say to the sister or brother inside of us, Reka, fool, and condemn and rage against ourselves, we hide it from the world. We refuse to admit ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. But in contemplative prayer, in meditation, in stillness, in quiet time, in mindful practice, whatever you call it, we take time to be good to ourselves. We take time to love ourselves, for only then will, be able, will we be able to love our neighbors as we have loved ourselves. In contemplative prayer, we take time to listen. We take time to notice. We take time to observe. 
We take time to pay attention. We take time to tune in. We take note of all of the chatter. And we do this without judgment. We do it without shame. We do it without recrimination. We look upon ourselves the way that Jesus looks upon us. We look without demands. We look without immediate expectations. And in the quiet stillness, we ask ourselves questions. Questions that we would ask of any other hurting person, but so seldom ask of ourselves. We ask ourselves, I wonder why you're doing this. I wonder where this feeling's coming from. What do I, oh, here's one. What do I actually need? What is this saying to me? Is my body saying, haven't you forgotten something, Stan? Is my soul saying, there's something really important here that I want you to see? Please pay attention to me. Now, I admit and I know that when we describe a time of prayer and stillness, as the observation of our thoughts and feelings, tuning in to what's going on in our bodies and our minds and our hearts, I know that a lot of people will recoil and say, that's the last thing I want to do. I'm so sick of the chatter going on in my mind and body, the last thing I want to do is take time and sit in that. But we're not talking about getting alone with our thoughts and feelings to marinate and stew in them. We're not talking about getting alone with those things so that they can become more infected, ultimately gangrenous, and lead to amputations in our life. We're not talking about making it worse. We're talking about getting alone with these things, taking responsibility for them, learning from them, transforming them, and even being transformed by them. What Jesus taught us and what every great sage has taught us from Merton to Nowen and all the rest is that meditation and prayer is the bridge. A space of stillness is liminal space, threshold space. That space of quietness is the bridge between our subconscious life and our conscious life. It is the purposefully built bridge between my unintentional thinking and my intentional thinking. It is a holy space where I bring all of my unbidden feelings and emotions that I don't control into the very presence of the way I want my life to feel and the intention with which I am deciding to set my life and affections. And it's in this holy space that first of all we lovingly accept what is. And I said this morning... And I was first still. And then I was aware. And in the awareness, there's a moment of internal honesty. For someone like me, who is always fine, and if you've been around the 12-step world very long, you know what fine is an acronym for. Ask me after church. I'll tell you. How you doing? Good, 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 good. How you doing? Great, fine. 
But outside of social settings, alone with yourself, there is a moment of awareness and then a moment of admission. And in this holy space, we lovingly accept ourselves and we submit then to an alchemy of grace, a divine grace that leads us to humble acceptance, to non-judgment, to trust, to submission, to letting go, to patience, to compassion. And as our meditation begins with stillness, body awareness, connecting to our breathing, the last few months it has been brought to my attention so clearly that I have been such a shallow breather and that is such a sacrament of an internal process because the rhythm of our respiration is exhale, inhale. And if I ask you which is the most important part, you would know that's a ridiculous question because both are needed. And in the rhythm of our life, many of us are good at exhaling, but we're not good at inhaling. Jesus went around everywhere doing good. He exhaled. He breathed on them when they received the Holy Spirit, but he also went alone to private places and breathe deeply. We connect and we observe and we listen and we never conclude that time of meditation, that time of prayer. That's why the Apostle Paul could say that we pray always because when you get up off of that little cushion, when you leave that place, when you're called out by your child or your job, or you Amen may be the most ineffectual word we ever use in prayer because there is no amen to that moment. But I take this practice of a contemplative life into my day. I take this practice of trust and submission and letting go, this practice of non-judgment, of mindfulness and awareness into my day because it's just that. It's a practice and none of us are ever going to perfect it and I feel like such a newbie at it that all I can possibly do is practice it. And even in the course of my day, after I've practiced it that morning, I can still end up sleepwalking middle of the afternoon. But what I found is if I have started my day with the practice, I am quicker to catch myself in my manic, in my funk, in my sensitivity. And as I slip into the sleepwalking, I know what's happening because I've practiced it this morning. I will feel it. I will know things are out of sort and I will recenter myself. I will bring myself back. So the first thing, and, and we're going to do just a little bit of that here in just a moment, but I looked this morning after I got completely through with the message and after I found my quiet time to get alone and to get still, it's amazing what five hours spent on other people's lives don't do for you. It was amazing how when I got alone with myself and God, a peace came. And I simply afterwards scribbled this down and I just asked myself, I know it worked, what did I just do? And I wrote down, I got still. And using onomatopoeia, remember that that thing you make noises and blah, well, I, anyway, you know what, you don't know what it is. Anybody know what onomatopoeia is? I'm getting very sidetracked right now, so let me get back here to my notes. <laughs> Using onomatopoeia, the first stage for me is shh, shh, 
And after I got still, again, Beekner says, many of us despise silence because it says way too much. But you get still. So many of us are scared to death to get still because we know what happens there. Because we haven't learned how to deal with those thoughts and feelings, they incriminate us. We judge ourselves. We haven't learned to deal compassionately with ourselves. I just got still. Shh. And then awareness begins to set in. And it's not an epiphany. There's no sense of deep wisdom in it. There's no answer. This isn't intellectualizing. This isn't fixing. It's not shaming. It's just noticing with compassion. It's curiosity. Words that I think fit there are, isn't this interesting? Friday morning, I woke up, huh, weekend. Hmm. And so onomatopoeia for that stage is, hmm, hmm. You go from shh to hmm. And you listen. And the wonderful thing about sitting with non-judgment and compassion is you are sitting in the presence of Jesus, the most compassionate human ever. You're sitting in the presence of God and the peace that comes when you sit in the tension, the brokenness, the struggle, you sit in it and you realize that you are still beloved and it's well with your soul and none of this has anything to do with whether I'm beloved or have worth. And sitting in that belovedness peacefully, bathed in the compassion of the divine, the shh and the hmm begins to lead to the oh. That's what was happening. And if you miss that the shh and the hmm and the oh, if you miss that in your forehead, the tension in your chest and the heaviness on your shoulder and the ache in your back and the flutter in your stomach, if you miss that this is the voice of God, then you may leave there not even knowing that you've encountered the divine. How did we miss that, people who believe in the embodied God? And as understanding, understanding begins to set in, compassion leads to understanding. And I look and I say, that actually happens to me a lot on Friday morning. Because Thursday nights are always the same for me. No specifics here. You're not my therapist. You are my friends. And I can just tell you, Thursday night's hard on me every week. Hmm. Oh. 
And compassion leads to understanding. And nothing's fixed. Nothing's resolved. But you get up off that little cushion and you look out at life bathed in compassion, resting in the presence of the one who calls you beloved. And you look at the thought and you bring it into subjection to a grace bigger than even you can give. And you arrest that feeling and say, I'm not my feeling. I'm not a funk. I feel that. And I know why. And you know what? Anybody would. And you hold it and say, this may not be changeable today, but I'm going to decide with the help of God what meaning I bring to this, how I live out of this. And then you get up from there and you don't leave meditation. You go into a life of meditation. You don't leave prayer. You go into a life of prayer. And you carry this rhythm of shh, hmm, oh, with you all day long. This, brothers and sisters, is the gift of God to us. This is called contemplative prayer. This is mindful living. And this is why Jesus often would leave the crowd and the work when he felt himself breathing low and the breath getting shallow and he would go at three o'clock in the morning to an alone place knowing that in just a little while life will be a knocking and if you are a contemplative when they come a knocking you do not curse the child and you do not curse the job you do what Jesus did and you get up and say that was a nice time a little shorter than I would have liked. But let us go now. And you go breathe the Holy Spirit everywhere you go because that's what you've been breathing in. So, 15 years ago, I quit praying as I knew how to pray because the theology behind the prayer that I had been taught no longer worked for me and the practice of prayer went away from me and it was a great shame to me because of my vocation that I could not call myself a person of prayer. I now look back compassionately and reflect upon that and I feel no recrimination. I feel no shame. But for a long time I carried a lot of shame with that. Um, Sadly, prayer quit working for me mentally, spiritually, in every way. And I, I was one of those classically deconstructed religionists who has lost what used to work for you and are, you're in that sad in-between ground of you hadn't found what does work for you. And I can simply say it's been a great relief in this last year that that huge vacuum in my life that an old construct of prayer used to pray, used to fill. That idea of me forcing my way into God's throne room, reminding God of things that God had forgotten and holding God accountable. And if I did that just right, God would be the magic wand and the crystal ball and the genie in the bottle. It just quit working. To have found this place 
And to have heard Jesus say that the kingdom of heaven is not out there, it's in here. The Holy Spirit is falling on me from the heavens again and again and again. The heavens within me, it is dropping down into my consciousness again and again and again in ways that are transformative. And I'm not imposing this on anybody. I'm just here sharing my experience, my hope, and my strength. And I believe this is the hope, experience, and strength of countless sages through the ages. And if you don't have 10 minutes to take, then you really don't have a life. It is yours for the taking. So I, I want to just close today with both our feet on the ground and our eyes closed. Just a couple of minutes before we go home. Ground your feet in. Feel the ground beneath you. The earth that God has made to support you. Wiggle your toes and your shoes. Sometimes we can get so paralyzed and detached from our body we forget we have bodies. Imagine roots going out of the bottom of your feet down into the earth, the earth from which God drew you from the dust we came. And just tell yourself, I belong here. Unclench your fist, uncross your arms. I would tell you to open your hands, but sometime that open-handed feeling leaves us waiting on something from outside. Maybe the best thing to do right now is turn your hands over, press them against your body, maybe even press them against your heart. Wouldn't that, that would feel good. Just put your hands on your heart. How long has it been since you actually put your hand on your chest? Some of us are uncomfortable even touching our bodies, our chest. Just feel. And then for all of us shallow breathers, breathe in deep. Do you remember that the Holy Spirit is Numa Hagion, the breath of God? He breathed into the dust and it became a living soul. He breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Breathe in. Feel your breath. And then listen without any judgment. Notice with compassion what's happening. Notice the discomfort without judgment. Notice the comfort without understanding. Just notice. Just listen. Listen to the chatter of the weak. 
Some of you hear the stuff of dreams. Some of you hear the stuff of nightmares. You wrestled this week with voices that said you're not a good parent. You're not enough as a husband. You're never going to make it. Don't judge these things. Listen to them. What are these things saying? What are they really saying beyond the surface chatter? What is God saying to you? This is your daily bread. These are the voices of God. If you will harness them and follow them down into the substrate of your soul, Shh. Hmm. Oh. Now, have you even felt your heart beat yet? Okay. Take another deep breath. Feet rooted into the gift of God. Listening. Compassion. Care. Aha. Understanding. Thank you, God. That for people like me who had given up on voices from the heavens, for people like me who were trained to find you in hurricanes, tornadoes, and mighty winds, thank you, God, for bringing us back to the still small voice that courses through our veins that beats in our chest, that aches in our body, that flies over our head incriminatingly. Thank you for bringing us back to the voice of God. Teach us now to listen. We pray these things in the name of the one who stole away to a quiet place alone and prayed. Help us to breathe deeply now. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, but not really, because we will take this now, a life of prayer into the world. Amen?